Many podcasters stick with the normal podcasting practices, but you, you're different. You like to be different and try different things. You do it like this, and then you break the mold. This is Podcasting Experiments, and this is where we focus on different things that we can try with our podcast to make them different and hopefully better. You can check out the website at podcastingexperiments.com. My name is Joshua Rivers from Podcast Guy Media, where I help people start and produce their podcast. Today, we talk with Mark Hirschberg, who is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, in all kinds of different ways, Marcus spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s. In this episode, Mark shares his approach for podcasting and how he used podcasts as a way to build an audience for his upcoming book. And this is a fantastic conversation. And so we look at not only the importance of podcasts when it comes to doing marketing, but Also, we're going to look at some of the different things that he's done as far as networking and how he actually did the marketing, but he also created a really cool set of documents that he shares with the hosts that makes it really, really easy to be able to have some great conversations. And so we're going to get into what those are and how you can be able to do the same thing when you're looking to be a guest on a podcast. And so let's jump into this conversation with Mark. I began my career as a software engineer during the dot-com era and moved up the ranks. I've been a chief technology officer for a number of years, typically helping startups or sometimes larger companies play startup. However, as I grew in my role, what I found, part of what drew me to the executive side was the problems I enjoyed were problems that were people-related. And I found the people problems were much more challenging than the technical problems. And so I started focusing a lot of my own development and my own research on topics like management, teamwork, communication, leadership. And in doing so, I noticed that we as a society were not developing these skills in people. So in parallel to the growth in my day job. I also began teaching at MIT. I've been teaching a class now for about 20 years where we're teaching a lot of these skills because we recognize they weren't getting developed in our students. And it's not just an MIT issue. This is an issue that we've seen across the board. So I have this kind of second career of teaching these professional skills. And professional efficacy has always been a passion of mine in the side work and a lot of the volunteer work. And then I turned that all into a book the career toolkit, essential skills for success that no one taught you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then that book that you wrote, how are you going about trying to market that? What, what avenues or what specific things are you um, looking at doing? Obviously podcasting going as a podcast guest is one and we'll get to that, but other than that, what are you, what are you trying to do? Sure. And I'll mention I've worked at a number of marketing companies throughout my career. And that was beneficial because between working at those companies and just my own professional development, taking online classes and reading and talking to people in marketing, I've developed a lot of marketing skills. I wouldn't say I'm the the world's greatest marketer, but I've definitely picked up skills, which it feels almost like a slumdog millionaire moment where all these skills I've learned along the way have been able to, to help. So some of what I've been doing other than podcasts. Obviously, I create a website. I have social media that right now is not yet live. Looking at timing, one thing I learned from an author friend is releasing social media and releasing a book before an election is just not a good plan. So I'm holding off (laughs) till everything calms down post-election and then the social media goes live. I am reaching out to traditional media, and that actually includes certain podcasts that are some of the the most best-known podcasts, including yourself, but some others as well, and traditional media, including TV, radio, and newspaper. 
trying to get them to do book reviews or mention the book or build up traditional uh, earned media. I am speaking at different events. In addition to podcasts, I'm going on some university lectures. And interestingly, in this time of coronavirus, this has gotten easier in many ways because now I don't have to get on a plane and lose a couple days and fly out and do all the logistics. Now it's become, okay, I'm doing it from my home and I can just do back to back. So from a time perspective, that's actually been a, been a plus side of an otherwise unfortunate pandemic. And then I've also created an app to help promote the book. And I think that's probably fairly unique. Everything else is pretty standard, but I think the app is unique in my promotion. Okay, so let's talk about that then. So what are you doing with the app and how is that helping with helping the people, but then also helping with sales and such? When I was trying to figure out what we need in an app, I'm a tech guy by training. So I thought, can I use an app to help promote the book? And I thought about what an app would do. There's a lot of basic apps out there. and A lot of authors use apps that simply take their book content and do it as here's an ebook version. Apple, by the way, hates that. They'd rather you put it through an ebook reader. Google's not a fan either, but people have done it. What I did is I want to make the app more valuable. I want to deliver value to the end user, but also make my content stickier and more engaging. So I thought about one of the limitations of a book. And if you read a lot of business books or if you read self-help books, one challenge many people have, myself included, is that three, four weeks out, you've forgotten most of what it says. You remember the high level, the 30,000 foot idea, but you forget, oh, I should be doing X or every day it says to do Y. You forget those details. I took an app and said, let's put all those tips into the app. So imagine you went through the book with a highlighter and said, here's a good quote, here's a good tip, here's a reminder. Took all that, put into an app, and so now I've got in your pocket. But then the second piece is no one wants to open an app and look at. So the app does a passive reminder to you. Lots of people can build an app where you open and get content. This does a daily push. So if you think about a daily affirmation or a daily Bible verse, there's plenty of those apps. I do the same thing, but the content is from the book. And so each day you get a pop-up that reminds you should be doing X, think about doing Y, and it helps reinforce what you're reading. You can even set it to, I'm just reading chapter three this week, okay, I only want tips from chapter three. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, if you have, so my, my categories correspond to chapters. If you've got a networking event and you're saying, oh, what was it Mark said about networking? You can just open it and you can start flipping through tips. I want it to, to feel like Tinder or a dating app where you can just quickly go through all the tips to do a, a crash course. And what really surprised me, I thought this must exist. I'm just going to go license it. I'm going to go buy it. I'd rather buy than build. I could not find any app that did this. There are lots of flashcard apps, including a make your own flashcard app, but this isn't about question and answer. And the key point was not having it such that you can open and look, but that passively does that daily reminder to you. And that didn't exist. So I filed a provisional patent on it and built the app. I actually built it as a white label version so that other authors could now use this app and create their own branded content that way. That is awesome. I absolutely love that. And I actually know at least one person that is writing a book that may be interested in that. So I love that. <laughs> I am going to be sharing this with him for sure after, the, after we're done. Please do it. This, by the way, this is an interesting example of entrepreneurship at the risk of saying like I'm tooting my own horn. And I don't think of that as necessarily my biggest strength. But I set out to write a book, discovered a problem along the way, and then found I could create a solution that would help not just me, but everyone with this problem and generate a new product and potentially a new business. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think that's going to... I, th- I think that's going to be, uh, I don't know, revolutionary, maybe? I don't know. We'll see. It sounds like it could be very helpful for on the user side to be able to get those. Because, I mean, I, I find myself in the same boat when it comes to I read or I listen to an audiobook or whatever. And, yeah, the content's there for a little bit, but it doesn't always stick. So 
I think that's great. I've actually been taking notes on my books. As I read books, I sit there, I've got electronic notes, and that slows down the reading process, unfortunately. But that's what I need to do to retain it, because I'll say, there was something about this thing, and I'm not going to be able to look it up even with an index, but I can do a, a search, a text search mm -hmm. in, the, in my files. But this app will help make that a little easier. Okay, yeah. Yeah, very nice, very nice. So let's look at what you're doing with the, the podcasting realm. You are making a podcast guest circuit, I guess you could say, and other media appearances as well. So how are you utilizing podcasting to be able to help promote the book? Podcasts are probably my primary channel. When I began this process, when I first thought, I think I want to write a book, and the book, by the way, wasn't planned. It grew organically. But once I said, all right, this is a book, I reached out to my friend, Dory Clark. Dory has written a number of best-selling business books. And I asked her for advice. And she said, podcasts, this is the way to go. And if you think about it, when some big celebrity comes out and they've got a new movie, what do they do? They go on the late night talk show circuits. Right. One night they're on Colbert, the next night they're on Kimmel. Throughout the week, you can follow them from one to another. Mm -hmm. And this is how they promote the movie. Those of us who aren't quite at that celebrity level, we're not going on the late night talk shows. We're not quite there. But podcasts is a democratization of that type of media. And that's something that is accessible to those of us up and down the kind of level of publicity you might have. So she said, look, podcasts are the way to do it. This is standard for authors. I said, all right, clearly I need to focus on this. What I've done to make that successful, lots of people I found will go and cherry pick, oh, I heard about this, I heard about that. I approached it very systematically. I have created a list of over 500 podcasts. And the way I built that list is I looked at the topics in my book. Now, I have the advantage that my book is very broad. In the, the career toolkit, I cover 10 different skills. There's a chapter on networking, a chapter on negotiations, a chapter on leadership. So it's perhaps a little more divergent in its topics than another book that's just on one core narrow topic, such as how to educate young children. So I had 10 different topics to choose from, and I went, I did some searches, I just looked for top podcasts on X. And from there, I looked on sites. I could just go to something like Apple and say, what are the top Apple podcasts on X? I also found people wrote articles, like the best 50 leadership podcasts, so I could find those lists. And that's how I constructed my initial list. Then later on, I found services such as Podit, Podit was probably the best. Uh, Podit basically is an index of different podcasts. And so mm -hmm. you can search by category for people who aren't as broad as I am. And you can just say, I want podcasts on food. And it says, okay, here's the dozen or so food podcasts. Or you can just search through all of them alphabetically. And because I was so broad, I just said, I'm going to look A to Z, every one, figure out which ones are relevant. I put those in my list. And when I constructed this list, I did so not just, okay, here's the list. I put down, it's all an Excel spreadsheet, and it's organized by category. And I'd list out, here's the title, here's a link to the podcast. I need that because I need to listen to a podcast before I reach out to someone. I want to just hear, maybe not even a full episode, but you just want to listen a little to get a sense of the style of what it is you're looking for. I'll have a link to their website. You also want to look at the website and see what the podcaster says about the podcast. I'll have who's the name of the host because you'd like to address the person by name when you do the outreach. The contact information, and some people have email, some people web form, some people you can contact them through a site like Podit, and any notes that might be relevant. So I'll, I'll have all this in a spreadsheet. I'll come back to why I put all in a spreadsheet in a moment. There were a few other sites, I think guest of a podcast or podcast guest. There's a few with very similar names. And so those I signed up for as well. They work similar to another site I use called HARO, which sometimes has podcasts as well. HARO stands for help a reporter out. This is a good source for publicity. And this is actually another source for authors. Everyday reporters post to HARO. 
and they say, I need a source on X. I need an expert on nanoparticles. I need someone going through a divorce during COVID. I need someone who's a picky eater. Just whatever arbitrary thing they're looking for their story, they put out, and if you sign up for the horror list, which is free, you get this every day and you can say, oh, I'm an expert on nanoparticles. I'm a picky eater. And you can hope they'll quote you in the story. Sometimes they'll ask for podcast guests. Some of these sites do the same thing, except they're explicit about podcast guests. And so that's given me some additional sources of podcasts. So I built this list. And one of the reasons I recommend using a list First, it's the only way you're going to keep track of it. Unless you're using a CRM, a customer relationship management system, you're not going to remember which podcast did I reach out to, who have I emailed, who haven't I emailed, who's gotten back to me, who might I need to follow up with. And it's easiest to do in a spreadsheet. The other thing you can do, and I highly recommend this for anyone trying to get on a lot of podcasts, especially if you have something to promote like a new book or a CD or some type of content where you want to reach a lot of people, find peers with whom you can do this. I'm fortunate to know other authors who have written similar enough books. And after I put all this effort in to build this list, just on general principle, I like to help my friends. I believe my key to networking is helping before asking. And so now that I've built this, I can go and share it with them and say, okay, you guys can use this too. I put in this work. This can help your book as well. But one of the advantages you get from doing this is that now if they start to go on shows, if they're on a podcast you want to get on, they know the host. And now if they reach out to the host, it's not just random person saying, please put me on. The host says, okay, I know you've been on. You were good. If you're referring someone, that person probably is worth at least looking at. And so if you build such a list, and can do so in a cohort with other people, now you can all help each other out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I like that. I like that. So a lot of really good tips there for, for being able to do that. Uh, another thing I know you did is you reached out to me because we connected through Podit on there. So great resource. And, and one of the really great things about Podit too, is, and some of those other resources similar, is that it is specifically people that are looking for guests to come on their podcast. So not just general lists of podcasts, but ones that are specifically looking for guests. And so that makes it easy on a guest side. And then vice versa, if you're a podcaster uh, host, a podcast host, and you're looking to find guests, you can be able to do the same thing there. And they're, they're a lot more receptive to going on the podcast because that's what they're looking for instead of doing random uh, searches and things like that. Definitely a good plug for that. But, but one of the things that you sent me as before we had our, uh, this interview is you sent me a whole list. It was a document, I don't know, five pages or something like that with potential questions and things like that to help me be able to prepare for what it is that you can be able to offer. So can you explain where you got that idea from and your thinking behind that and how you prepared it? <clears throat> That I read an article and unfortunately a blog post, and unfortunately I don't remember the author because I like to give credit uh, when I get a good idea from someone. And I just realized something. I don't have my mic plugged in. We're going off my Apple mic. Is this still good to continue? Yeah. Well, I plug in my mic. Yeah. Let's just continue with, with this at the same time. Otherwise it might just yeah. sound weird being a different thing. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I missed. This is what happens when I don't sleep. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm going to go back and start the question. I had read a blog post early on. Unfortunately, I don't remember who wrote it because I like to give credit. And it recommended building such a list of questions. One of the things you learn when you do marketing is to make it as easy as possible for your target to make the decision or think through whatever you need to get them to do. You want to arm them with information. You want to ask them to do the least work possible. And so taking this concept and applying it to podcast outreach, what this author had said is create that question list. Now, I actually have two documents I sent. 
For some people, these will be the same. For some, it will be different. The first is the media kit. Now, the media kit is a standard kit that people use. PR has used it for years. In a standard media kit, you've got a couple pages. The first will be about the book or about whatever the product or service or key ideas. And it's just a one-page summary sheet. On mine, it's got the image of the book cover. It's got a little bit about the book. It's got information such as the ISBN number, when it's coming out, just one sheet where you go, okay, here's everything I need to know. Contact information. So if they look at nothing else, they get on the sheet. The additional pages have basic content such as about the author, and that includes an image and my bio. There's some general questions about the book to give more context, such as why did you write this book and what's your qualifications and background for it. And this just for someone quickly flipping through it, they can say, oh, okay, Mark's been teaching for years. He looks qualified. Oh, he's writing because he wants to achieve this. Okay, this kind of makes sense. And then you'll have a couple quotes about uh, the book. Typically, we call it social proof. Some The types of quotes that you'd see on a back cover, for example, you'd also put here. And this is a quick thing to say, here's a quick overview of the book. Someone such as a podcaster or a journalist can within two, three minutes get a good overview of the content of what you're doing, in this case, the book, and whether this would be a good fit for them. Absolutely, you need to have a media kit. You can look online to see how to create one. They generally follow standard formats, like a resume, in that everyone's looks a little different, but is mostly the same. Now, the second piece is an interview kit. And here I go more in-depth on the question side. So this is something, I don't know if there are standard templates, but it's not that complicated to make. The first page, even half of a first page really, gives the, okay, here's that quick summary of the book. So I have maybe one or two paragraphs on it. I've got the chapter list on the page. I think I might have the cover on there as well. I can't remember if I do. But then the rest of the document is lists of questions for the podcaster to ask me. And now when you reach out to podcasters, you're going to find they vary. Some podcasters say, I just want to do a very natural, let's just jump on the call and have a conversation. Some say, I like to plan out my questions. Some will actually say, I want you to tell me the questions you want me to ask. And in that case, you have to do the work for them anyway. So you might as well do it ahead of time. And now you're set up, right? Do it once can use for everyone. But remember that different podcasters want different things. They might have different angles. It might be a podcaster targeting women. It might be a podcast podcaster targeting college students. They might have different angles. And so the questions might differ. And again, in my case, because I have 10 different chapters that are in 10 different topics, someone might say, we want, we're a leadership podcast. I want to talk to you about leadership. Someone else says, we're a podcast about advancing your career. And so I need questions for each topic. So the way I laid it out is I have it first by category. So each chapter has a set of anywhere from about 8 to 15 potential questions. Then I have it by audience type. Is this for executives? Is this for recent college hires? Is this for HR? Is this for women? There are a lot of podcasts that tend to target women specifically or women in business, so I made sure to have that one. Or then I can go with certain angles that might resonate with podcasters as well. So I have this entire list, and my document winds up being, I think, probably about six pages. Yours will probably be shorter. For most people, it'll be two, maybe three pages. And when I reach out to the podcaster, I say, I'm including my interview kit. Here's a list of potential questions. You, of course, can ask me whatever you want. It's your podcast, your audience. You know what angle works. So use what works for you. But if this makes your job easier, please feel free to use it. And of course, the great thing is I know what those questions are, and I've got my prepared answers for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. And we, we had a pre-interview conversation so we can establish a little bit about what we were going to be talking about. And then you sent that. And I'm like, this is like really impressive. I've done, I don't know how many interviews 
probably over a hundred interviews over my podcasting career. And I'd, I've never had anybody have something this prepared for it. So from podcast host perspective, it's wow. Okay. This guest is like super prepared and ready to not just deliver the, the content and the value, but be able to help make it easy as well. And, and again, like you said, some podcast hosts are different in how they want to approach it, but this is at least one, one less thing they have to worry about. So if they want to do it, they're on their own. No sweat off your back because there's all the other podcasts that you go on that do need it. And you did the work once and, and it delivers multiple times over, but yeah, so it, it's really helpful to be able to, it, co- be able to do it costs nothing to just drop in the email. And if they want to ignore it, yeah, no, no worries. So yeah, exactly. it, it only helps. Yeah, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I know you're still in the middle of this, but what kind of results have you seen from going on different podcasts and things like that? It's been pretty positive. It's been good. I've gotten a good response. I think having this document has helped. I've had other people who have commented on, wow, you're so prepared, so organized. And so what one thing that tells me is it's a good signal as well, because podcasters like yourself probably have lots of guests reaching out saying, oh, pick me. And you don't know, do they have good value? Can they speak well? Are they prepared? Or they just get lost? But when you send a document like this, you're signaling, I've thought about this. I have a logical plan. You don't know if I can answer the questions well, but the fact that I've thought about what the questions are and how to organize it says he's not just going to ramble, presumably. There's probably some cohesive strategy in the content he's delivering. Yeah. And so I think that's helped. I've had some fantastic podcasters who did amazing interviews. I've had others who have said, hand me a list of questions and here's what we'll go through. It's just boom, set up, question, answer. And I've gotten good feedback. I had a conference reach out to me recently. They heard one of the podcasts and said, we'd love to have you come speak at the conference. So I think I'm getting good results. Mm-hmm. Very good. Excellent. And Because when it comes to like how successful a podcast appearances or whatever can be measured in different ways. And so, and so that's why I left it a little more broad. So I'm glad you answered the way you did. Cause some people look at it as I went on the podcast and I only sold dot, dot, dot number of books and, and, and maybe that's all they're looking for. But what you're mentioning there and what I've seen also is that there's so many other potential um, ways that you can be able to, you can make connections and, those connections might be what deliver, or maybe it's a connection of a connection that like gives you this result. And then you start looking back, you're like, Oh yeah, it's because I went on this podcast or I went on these series of podcasts and it wasn't just the one by itself, but it's because I went on whatever these 20 different podcasts in this time frame that it really gave me that leverage to be able to step forward. Looking at from a marketing perspective, I think no podcast is bad. Think of it as follows. If you're doing traditional marketing, let's say online marketing, you're buying ads. You're on Facebook or Google or whoever. You're paying what's called a, a CPM, a cost per thousand, or you're paying a CPC, a cost per click. So if you're buying ads, cost per thousand. When I think about a book like mine, I'm trying to target people interested in getting better in business and buying business books, that's going to be probably a $20 CPM. So a thousand people will see my ad for $20. Okay. Now, how many of us actually pay attention to the ads we see? Very few, right? We're bombarded with ads. We ignore most of them. So if I spend $20, I'm going to have a thousand people see the ad by the corner of their eye And realistically, it means maybe two or three actually look and pay attention. And if I'm lucky, one of them clicks. But when you're doing a podcast, even if that podcast is tiny, even if that podcast only has 10 people listening to an episode, you have 10 people who are actively engaged with your content. They're actively listening to you. They hear about your book, your service, your product. And it's going to register far more than just some ad that popped up in the corner of their screen on a web page where they were focused on something else. 
So even when there seems to be a tiny number of listeners for the investment of time, or in some cases, some podcasters do charge money and we can talk about that, but you're going to get just much more attention and much more engagement. And the ROI on that is far better than what you're getting in most cases from buying ads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned there about some podcasters charging. So what has your experience been with that? I've run into a couple who do, and I've noticed there are two levels of charging. Now, I have said no to all of them. I will not pay to be on. Maybe that will change later, but I think philosophically I feel wrong doing so. One level is where they charge a nominal fee, and this is typically on the order of maybe about $25 to $50. And the explanation that they give, their justification is they've had people cancel. And so you see this with a lot of lesser known podcasts, smaller podcasts, and they just have people say, oh yeah, yeah, I'll be on your show, I'll see you next Tuesday, and then they don't show up. So the commitment of money says, well, I paid $30, I really should show up or I wasted the money. And I certainly get what they're trying to achieve there. They probably just had one too many people cancel on them and they felt their time was being wasted. So those aren't necessarily, at least what they claim, to be money-making. They're just commitment enforcing. Then you have the higher level. These for smaller podcasts will go from maybe about $100 on the low end to I've seen for some major podcasts that your listeners have probably heard of asking for thousands of dollars. And on these podcasts, so the one major one, I'm not going to name it, but the one that I'm thinking of, very well-known podcaster, he has said, he, he once showed a picture where he said, this is how many books I get a day. And this is just a cold outreach. He'll get about eight books a day from authors saying, look at my great book, put me on your podcast. He just said, you know what, I, I can't deal with this. I certainly don't have time to read eight books a day. And this is how he saw a revenue opportunity that he had a large enough audience, enough people want to be on it, that he realized he could monetize as opposed to charging advertisers to be on the show effectively, to run their ads. He's Mm -hmm. charging guests to be on the show. I feel if a podcaster does that, they should disclose to their audience that they do it. It feels a little unethical. When I've mentioned this to people, and I said, oh, yeah, this podcaster said, this is what I will charge you to be on the show. They were shocked and they felt almost betrayed that, oh, it gets such great content. But now they realize the content is not necessarily what he's picking, but what people are in a sense buying. Now, you could argue, and this might be, be right, that they still feel they're getting good content. I'm sure he has some standards. He's not just going to take anyone with a check. And so if they're getting good value, maybe that's fine. And my opinion, that's just mine. And other people say, no, this is working. Certainly people who create content do need some way to generate revenue. And I certainly respect that. Just for me, it just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard another angle to that. It's similar to that first one that you mentioned. But the word they just kept, they were getting so many people asking to come on the show and it's okay. I need to filter these down because obviously I can't take everyone and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of these things. So like, okay, if you want to be on the show, it's $50 just to be able to filter through. And that way, okay, this person's serious, wanted to do that. And if they don't end up getting on the show, they don't pay the $50, but, but it's, it's something along those lines as well. So it's okay. We need a filter to, because I don't know how many he was getting exactly. It's, I think I was hearing this like third party. So I guess it's hearsay, but anyway, so I was hearing it said that, that he was getting whatever dozens of requests a day or whatever. And so it was just getting too much to be able to handle. But, but anyway, it's an interesting take though. Let me offer a potential compromise to any podcasters out there who feel they need to do that type of filter, but also don't like the idea of charging guests. I've been in a similar issue. As a CTO, I get salespeople calling me every day. They all want to speak to me. They all want to pitch me. Most are a massive waste of time. 
sometimes what I've done just to give them a chance and to cut through the noise is I said, okay, you can buy my time. Now, it would be wrong for me as a CTO to say, slip me a hundred bucks and I'll talk to you. That's inappropriate. But I happen to be active with a number of different nonprofit organizations. And I'm on the boards of two of them. And so in some cases I've said, tell you what, you make a donation to this charity and for X dollars, you get Y amount of my time. And this way I've created that filter, but I'm not myself profiting from it. We're helping a good cause. They can feel good about it. In fact, their company can even say, look, more, more companies, more nonprofits we've donated to. So they get some benefit from it. And because these are small nonprofits and I'm on the board, I can actively confirm, yes, there was you know, $100 donated to this nonprofit. So that's something you could try if you'd like to, to find a balance, to keep that filter without feeling like you're just profiting off of your guests. Interesting. Interesting. I like that. I like that. So it's like tying in a altruistic kind of vibe to it, helping out. So that, that's very cool. I like that. I like that idea. So if I ever decide to monetize, I might go that route. So <laughs> I've, I've got a number of charities that I can suggest if you do. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right. So I want to get into a little bit more about uh, some of the topics that you talk about in the book. And so one of the things that I think is really important is the idea of communication and being able to do that because communication is key on any level relationship that you have, whether it's in business or personal or anything. Communication is a very big thing. And it's something I know I need work on myself. I've been married for 17 plus years now. I've been with my wife for 20 years and it, I, I still am always reminded that my communication is not what it ought to be <laughs> when, when it comes to that or just on the business side working with people. It's, yeah, I think I've communicated this well. And then they come back with the question. It's of course, oh, wait, no, I didn't actually tell you that part. So I missed the communication. But anyway, so communication is really important. So what, do, what would you say is like a really important thing that if someone were to want to work on that communication, what would you tell them? That's a broad question because communication is a broad topic. Yes. So I'll <laughs> talk about some different angles you can go in and then a little about how I approach in the book. Keep in mind, communication, like most topics that I write about in the Career Toolkit, is something where you could, entire books have been written on any one topic. You can spend a semester or multiple semesters studying this topic. And when we think about communication, this can mean anything from standard public speaking, project your voice, make eye contact. It could be about how to deliver an effective message. It could be about targeting your audience. It could be about choices of even colors if we're talking about communication in written or, or marketing material. It could be about how to deliver your point effectively. There's a whole broad range. And so what I do in my book with all the topics, I get down to worse on the more fundamental points. I know you can find lots of content online on public speaking. I know you can find lots of content in other areas. I try to pick a fundamental area that most people aren't exposed to. The area I focus on is about communication models. And this is something I see time and again in the workplace, is that all of us come with some type of background. Now, I am a technologist. I spend a lot of time talking about software and technology and servers and the cloud. I was also trained as a physicist. One of my degrees is in physics. And so I think a lot about how physicists think, these mental models of when you have a car rolling down a hill. This is a standard physics problem. A car rolls down the hill and you try to figure out the velocity at the end after gravity's accelerated it. Okay, how do we model that problem? What is important? What is not important? How do we break it down into this analytical problem? That is very different than how my artist friends see the world. And they see colors, they see how things are positioned, they see lighting and shadows, and they see things that I don't really look at and notice uh, by default. 
it's different than how a lawyer sees the world, how a podcaster sees the world, because we all have this context of what's important. We all have languages. We all have mental models. We all have things we can refer to. And sometimes we forget that when we're talking to someone outside of our domain, that they don't have that model. They don't have that understanding. And so I create a few frameworks that explains how to think about what your model is and the models of other people. As we communicate, we can get that shared understanding of figuring out where our models overlap. And I can put things in terms that relate to the model that you have. So that's what I talk about in the book. I would say one of the other key things, and this I recommend to all my students, just because you asked the question, public speaking is actually a really critical skill for everyone. And it's important for two reasons. First, if you want to advance your career, it very much helps. You're going to have to do presentations to your corporate audience. You're going to have to do presentations. You don't have to, but helps to do it at conferences, to go on podcasts, to do things that raise your personal brand within the industry. But even more important, even if you never plan to set foot on a stage, public speaking is a skill that you use every day. What most people don't realize, public speaking, that's an interview. That's sitting around the conference table. Most people think of public speaking as I stand up at a podium and I read prepared remarks. But the skills that you use in public speaking, I'm using them right now on our podcast. This is spontaneous. This is not a prepared remark. But a lot of the public speaking skills I need to do. I'm not projecting. I'm not worried about eye contact with an audience who's listening to a podcast. But those skills I have developed help me to be a better podcast guest. They help me when I'm sitting in interview. They help me when I'm trying to argue for a course of action among my peers. And so public speaking skills are probably one of the most fundamental skills that you can develop. Yeah, absolutely. And I know personally that I am more introverted and I know growing up, it was a lot harder for me to be able to do that one-on-one. I could do okay. I was even uncomfortable in small groups. And so even my friends, I was sometimes a little more reserved, but then anytime it came to, okay, class, we're going to give an oral report now. It's like total breakdown. And it, I try to avoid as much of that as I possibly could. But growing up, to your point, I've learned the importance of being able to do that. And as a teenager, I started to slowly learn that and be able to grow into be able to do that. So how, from your experience and how you teach people to, that are more quiet or introverted to be able to speak up more, whether it's on a stage or just in conversation with coworkers or whatever. And I'm a natural introvert myself. Like you, I was actually not only introverted, but because of some childhood trauma, I was especially shy. And when I'd have to stand up, I remember in middle school, I'd stand up in front of the class and I would just keep my head down at the paper I was reading from. I couldn't even look up at the class and I would shake. And it was just a horrific experience. The anxiety waiting to be called on, the anxiety standing up there. I was terrible at it. I knew in high school that I needed to address this. And so I steered into it. I began by, in that case, joining the debate club. And that certainly helped. And it was nerve wracking, but it got easier over time. Now, for those who are not in high school or college where you have a rarely available debate club, there's a fantastic organization called Toastmasters. They have chapters all over the world and they will help you with your public speaking. They'll help with prepared remarks, they'll help with spontaneous remarks, short speeches, long speeches. They're a nonprofit organization, so you can go to toastmasters.org and find a local chapter. You can also say to your manager during an annual review, you can say, hey, by the way, a goal I would like to work on this next year is to develop this skill. Can you help me? Can we find ways where I can practice my public speaking? The truth is, Most public speaking, most issues have to do with confidence. It has to do with that anxiety of, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to say something stupid. Everyone's going to laugh at me. And if you can overcome that, you're probably about 70% of the way there. Yes, you still need to 
project your voice, be clear, be concise, all these other skills. But I'd say probably about 70% of it is just that confidence. What was actually the best thing for me, what helped me the most with my public speaking development was my years of ballroom dancing. I was a competitive dancer throughout my 20s. I went to a national championship seven years in a row. So I was very actively dancing. Now, the first thing you might think is, I didn't think people spoke when they danced. And you'd be right. There is no speaking at all. You get on the dance floor with your partner, music plays, and you dance around the floor. But why this helped is it built up that confidence. Because I can tell you the first couple times I was on the floor, probably the first solid year or so, I was nervous every time. You're performing. You're up on stage. What if I trip? What if I do something stupid? What if I get no marks from the judges? Won't this be embarrassing? And there were times where I've, I've tripped, probably the most embarrassing thing towards the, the end of my dancing career. I had my pants split in front of a couple hundred people. <laughs> and this is the type of thing, right? This is like the ultimate fear, right? What if I go on stage and my zipper is down, right? This is what scares us. But by going through, by being out performing, and yeah, I did a terrible job at that event, but no one laughed at me. No one stopped being my friend. And I built up the confidence that it's okay if I screw up a little. And then towards the end where I literally split my pants in front of hundreds of people and I got through it. And so at this point, there's very few things that can flap me when I'm on stage because I built up those positive experiences. So if you're wanting to get better at public speaking and you don't want to do Toastmasters, think about using other activities in your life. And that could be theater, it could be improv, it could even be some other type of sport, but anything where you are in front of people and they're looking at you and you get that confidence of, yeah, I could screw up, but it's okay. That's gonna build the confidence. And if you can translate that, if you can mentally think about how to apply this when you go up to do public speaking, it's gonna go a long way in helping you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a couple of the other topics that you talk about in the book, and I can see how they, they dovetail at least a little bit with communication, and that is both networking and negotiation. So how can we work on our communication then in specifically preparing for either one of those situations? People think about networking in a very transactional way. They think about, okay, I need a job, so I have to go out, I have to go network. I hear this all the time. I need a job, time to start networking. And they go out, they go to an event, and they basically go and try to collect business cards or the modern equivalent, try to collect LinkedIn connections and just find people and say, oh, hey, nice to meet you. I need a job. Can you help me? Not quite that succinct, but that is the nature of their conversations. In truth, networking is relationship building. And so when you go out and network, don't think of it as I have to go network today to get a job literally this afternoon. You think of it as I need to build relationships with people such that down the road when I need a job or any of the other things that you can get from networking, I have built this relationship over time and now I can call upon that relationship. And so it's relationship building. If you've ever had a friend you have a relationship, right? You can do this. So when you think about building your network, you think about almost like building friendships. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be a friend of everyone in your network. You have some people who are just professional connections, but much like friendships, rarely do we meet someone and create that instant friendship. It comes from repeated interactions with them. It comes from having something in common with them. And so when you meet someone, when you feel perhaps some type of connection, you feel like, oh, this is a person I'd like to get to know, you're going to want to have repeated interactions. You're going to want to build that relationship over time. The way you think about doing that is what do we have in common? What might be of interest to this person as well as myself? And as you can figure that out, and that might come from in the conversations, you want to do some exploration to understand what is important to this person. And then you want to talk about topics that are of interest or find activities that are of common interest to both of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know there's definitely a lot more that we can 
be able to get into in those areas. And I think the best way for people to do that is to be able to get your book. So where can people be able to do that? You can find my book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and at local bookstores. If you go to the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, you can look at the buy link and that can take you to any of these sites or others that we're adding on a regular basis. You can also, from that website, you can download the free app and so you can get a taste for the content even before you buy the book. You can also use it as you read the book to help reinforce the topics and make it stickier and gain more value when you do read the book. Excellent. So outside of the book, if someone wants to be able to get a hold of you, what would be the best way that they can be able to do that? If you go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, you can find the contact page. There you can send me a note. You can also follow the social media links. You're welcome to follow me there. And I will be launching a blog shortly, so you can follow my blog posts if you just want to get more content. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcasting Experiments. If you found this episode helpful, share it with someone you think would also benefit. Together, let's help raise the bar for podcasting. Check out the website at podcastingexperiments.com. Do you want to take your podcast to the next level, but just don't have the time to make it happen? Is your time stretched to the max, struggling just to get your next podcast episode out? Do you need help just getting started? Podcast Guy Media can offer the solution to both recover your time and improve your podcast. Go to podcastguymedia.com and find out how.